Hi, everyone. Brandon here with a few quick words before the podcast. In case you didn't know, Glass Tire is a nonprofit, and we are supported by readers and listeners like you. We're free to read thanks to all of our sponsors, and if you like what we do and think art criticism is important, please consider donating. All of the funds we receive go right back into the work we do, and the writers, editors, translators, videographers, and podcasters who cover art in Texas. If you visit glasstire.com donate, you can buy a ticket to our upcoming fundraiser, make a tax-deductible contribution to our work, or even pledge to make a monthly reoccurring donation. Every little bit truly does make a difference. Again, that's glasstire.com slash donate. Thanks for listening, and here's the show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is Glass Tires bi-monthly podcast about topical art topics. I am Christina Reese. I am Neil Farso, a contributing writer for Glass Tire. Very happy to be here to discuss our great experiences at the cinema. Yeah, we're going to talk to you guys today about, you know, first of all, we're going to try to make a case for why we think people should go to the cinema and see movies on the big screen. Um, and we're going to talk about some of our most memorable and bonkers experiences of going to see movies on the big screen. We've both had some some doozies. Um, and this is kind of kicked off by, um, Neil, t- tell us about the piece you wrote about the Bilatar movie. So for a long time, I have wanted to see uh, the Hungarian director uh, Bilatar's magnum opus called Satan Tango or Satan's Tango. A film from 1994 that is very rarely screened because it's 432 minutes long, (laughs) plus intermission, so it works out to be about an 8-hour and 15-minute experience. So it's all day. So in honor of the 25th anniversary of it, there is a new and fantastic restoration that has been kind of making its rounds uh, through the country at various specialty and art and repertory theaters. So it played at... AFS, Austin Film Society in Austin, in late November, and then at Rice Cinema uh, on January 18th, and it played, I think, at the Texas Theater in DFW at some point last winter as well. And so it was, you know, as we're talking about great cinema experiences, I would probably put that way at the top, nearly number one, and it is a experience that you pretty much can only have in the cinema because, I mean, you could certainly break it up and watch it in parts, but to watch that movie in that slow cinema style where many of the takes are five, six, seven minutes long, the camera is just tracking, following people walking, following the walls of a village. Or just uh, still inside just a still. house yeah. on a thing where people are moving in and out of exactly. the frame. Yeah. yeah. And so it's a completely different narrative language. And it, the thing, one of the arguments I would say of going to the cinema and going to a movie theater is that it does require a certain amount of surrender from you in the sense that you have to turn off your phone and you have to pay attention. And we are certainly in a boon right now for prestige TV, for interesting TV, you know, for, for television shows that really kind of push the limits of what, you know, that medium can be, you know, Fleabag or Chernobyl or, you know, any number of really good shows that have been on in the past few years. But 
you know, the way that we watch those shows still for the most part is kind of a different thing than being in the theater because it's we have our phones on, we have our laptops out. And so it's a split sort of distracted way of engaging with media. And seeing Satan Tango was just a really profound experience in the sense of just really losing yourself in this world that he created and that he created with such care and dedication and focus that it really was kind of like holographic or something like it was sort of like entering this incredibly desolate and bleak Hungarian village you know oh, at the God. End I of, mean you're really there yeah yeah you're really there you're really into you, you kind of you can feel the mud you can feel the rain you can feel the the texture on the walls of the village and and uh you know, it's it's like nothing else. And so what's so strange about it is, is I went to see it after you wrote the piece. I went to see it at Rice. And um, what's so crazily hypnotic and wonderful about it is no matter. I mean, no matter how bleak it is, you you can surrender to it pretty easily. I mean, he's a great filmmaker, so he knows what he's doing. And I guess he knows what sort of audience he's looking for. Everyone in the theater seemed to be pretty into it yeah it was a packed house at afs which i found to be you know really encouraging and really cool and it was a really oh i'm fun, sure afs was packed and yeah. it was a really fun experience to be with a large crowd kind of on that journey and you know that that is the thing of of tara too is that you know his movies thematically and plot wise are you know very bleak and very desolate but as a filmmaker he is a very sensual kind of exalted vision that he conjures that it's hard to feel you know completely down when you have an experience that is you know, you know so engaging and kind of rapturous and stuff and I, I recently at home I was one of his that I've not haven't seen in the theater but I would very much like to which is his last film before he retired the Turin Horace right. which is also you know incredible in terms of the cinematography and the music he uses the same composer and the same writer and oftentimes a lot of the same crew members uh, throughout his projects. So, But, you know, speaking to, you know, right, like right now, it's I think t tonight we're recording this on a Sunday. I believe t is are the Oscars tonight. No, the Oscars are going to be next Monday, a okay. week from tomorrow. All right. So, um, you no, know, I'm sorry. They're actually going to be two weeks from tomorrow. It's February 9th. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So you'll be hearing this before, right before that. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we just went to breakfast and I was talking about how I'm probably going... I, I've seen some movies in the theater, some of the Oscar contenders. In the, I saw Joker and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Little Women. And I've seen some things in the theater this year. But, my, I mean, I'm still talking to you about, like, well, tonight am I going to stream Parasite? Am mm -hmm. I going to stream... You know, so... I And I watch on a laptop. I mean, I'm worse than most people. I don't even watch on a television screen. So... But I, I realize how degraded that mm -hmm. experience is compared to what filmmakers really want it to be. But they're all having to contend with the fact that people are probably or possibly going to stream their movies instead of going to the movie theater. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I think that everyone's just probably happy for people to see it however they can. And, of, of course, the optimal way, I think, for most filmmakers is, you know, wanting it to be seen in the best theater possible. And I think a lot of these kind of up-and-coming Filmmakers like Ari Aster, who did Hereditary and Midsommar, and Robert Eggers, who did The Witch and The Lighthouse, they're both really working in a way where the theater experience in terms of the sound design and the music and using sort of like quadraphonic stereo design really, you know, amplifies the theater experience. And so I think 
a lot of people's understanding of, oh, a movie that I need to see in the theater is something like Avengers Endgame, or maybe if you're being more highbrow, like 1917, but mm-hmm. a movie where there's explosions, where there's action, things like that. But where special effects seem to be the whole, yeah. you know, hallmark of the movie. But, you know, I think that a lot of, you know, movies that don't have that can be pretty spectacular. So, you know, recently, uh, AFS, which, you know, is one of my favorite places in Texas, and I think it's just one of the great repertory and, you know, art cinemas in the country. I mean, I would put it up against Film Forum uh, in New York and the Cinematheque and LA and really mm-hmm. pretty much anywhere. And mm-hmm. so they recently screened uh, a 35 millimeter print of one of my favorite movies, The Cook, The Thief, uh, His Wife Walk and Her, her Lover, lover. Oh, which was so great to I see. I saw in the that theater. on a big screen. Yeah. I'm still traumatized. <laughs> yeah. That was, a, that was when it came out. It's a traumatic movie, but it's just, you know, the, the costumes and the way that the costumes change color yeah. when they, you know, with the rooms that they enter into really were so much kind of brighter and more intense in, in the cinema than they were when I watched it on. Oh, yeah. I mean, watching that movie when it came out, it's, it is, I mean, Greenaway is a painter as well as a filmmaker, and it is like going to the National Gallery and seeing mm-hmm. these giant paintings yeah. on the wall. That's what he's going for. Yeah. That's what he gets if you can go see his movies on a big screen. But a lot of this, though, and we've talked about this, is kind of about the community aspect mm-hmm. of it, the communal aspect of going to see a movie in a in a theater of total strangers, but you're all there for the same reason. Mm-hmm. And somehow that very much, you know, that obviously that, uh, that contributes to the feeling of, of, of the, mo- of the memory of the movie, of the impact of the movie. I think that it does. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, seeing a movie that, you know, like maybe an uproarious comedy, like I remember when I saw Borat in the theater, that was like just an insane experience. Mm-hmm. It's just a couple of times people were laughing so hard. It was just like, unbelievably loud and which is awesome you <laughs> yeah know? yeah or you know seeing get out was really fun to see that in mm-hmm. a theater seeing parasite in the theater is fun seeing movies like that that are sort of you know scary and surprising but also have a lot of dark humor those are great experiences to have in the theater and then you know seeing seeing a movie that is uh you know sort of confounding and strange and profound you know like um Something like another AFS one was seeing the Tarkovsky movie The Mirror, which is perhaps his most sort of stream of consciousness and uh, elliptical film. You know, it was a great experience to because you're just with a group of people that are similarly wrestling and grappling with, you know, a film that is, you know, pretty difficult to kind of get your hands around in a certain way. Yeah. It's slippery and elusive. And that's a cool experience, too. You it's know? pretty intentional. I am um, one of my experiences I was going to talk about is um, uh, Stanley Kubrick in England. He while he was alive, he didn't want um, England to screen A Clockwork Orange mm-hmm. because he was afraid of copycat crimes. Mm-hmm. So I was living over there. I was living in London when he died and they put it up on the big screens for the first time while I was there. And I'd seen it, of course, at home and, you know, growing up, my dad was a huge Kubrick fan. But um, I went to see A Clockwork Orange on a big screen. I I guess it was in 2000. It may have been 2001 um, at Trafalgar Square with Mm -hmm. a bunch of Kubrick fans who had also been waiting years and years and years to see it on a big screen the way that it was meant to be seen. That's great. It was amazing. It was an amazing experience. Yeah, I just saw just a couple weeks ago, I saw Barry Lyndon for the first time on the big screen, which completely blew me away Mm -hmm. and has elevated that one 
to, you know, way near the top for me for Kubrick. I mean, the beauty of that movie and him using those lenses that NASA designed that were fast enough so that he could actually shoot in candlelight, um, Mm. you know, and the way that a lot of the frames are sort of, you know, reminiscent of William Hogarth paintings and stuff like that. And just the juxtaposition between a movie that is so beautiful and that is, you know, kind of populated by these sort of mediocre, loudish people just kind of cheating and scamming their way through life is pretty profound and hilarious juxtaposition and a very funny movie too it also made me realize that Kubrick is a low-key comic genius and that a lot of his movies are extremely funny so of course there's Dr. Strangelove which yeah yeah Clockwork Orange also has very funny moments absolutely Barry Lyndon very funny moments The Shining as well has Mm -hmm. some very funny moments absolutely some very funny visual gags like for example when Jack Nicholson's waiting for his interview he's weirdly reading a Playgirl magazine and it's never explained why and you know just the design of Scatman Crothers apartment when he's watching uh the news in bed and there's this you know kind of giant portrait of a naked woman above, <laughs> above his bed which yeah. is quite funny yeah. and then i also uh i think it was last uh christmas i saw eyes wide shut in the theater which i hadn't seen since it came out and that was another one where i realized that that's also a very dry comedy and there's some really funny kind of recurring jokes in it like tom cruise is always telling people that he's a doctor as a kind of form of credentialism to get into certain places and things like that. Well, do you, you know? think that these nuances are clearer if you're in a theater and watching yes, it? You do. I do, because I think it comes back to your, you know, having, there's a couple of things. It's, you know, having your attention on the movie, not looking at your phone, not looking at your laptop. Not wandering into it's, the kitchen. Yeah, not, want, not pausing it, etc. <laughs> and then it's just larger. And so the screen is larger, the sound is t- turned up. And it's just, you know, it's a more intense and impactful experience. And I think that certainly things come through that you might miss, especially, you know, in subtle films and in, you know, sort of more uh, experimental, artistic uh, films. That's definitely an argument for seeing them in the theater is that you see things you might miss if you weren't. Uh, if you're watching them on a laptop or, you know, God forbid, an iPhone or something. Right, right. The way that I was, I was thinking, what, you know, one of my favorite filmmakers of all time is Fellini. And I don't know that that would be true if I hadn't taken a Fellini class. Sure. And uh, the whole point was that we went to the, it was a theater at SMU. And we sat down and we watched his movies on a big screen every week. And um, uh, again, I, I don't know that I, I would have ever even found I guess I would have ultimately stumbled into mm-hmm. these movies but I mean Amacord and El Nave Va and stuff like that on a big screen they were so affecting to yeah. me and I still think about this is you know this is it's 20 years later 25 mm-hmm. years later I'm still thinking about these movies and the impact that they made I mean there are movies that I you know I was thinking about um you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Bruce Conner, uh, the experimental mm-hmm. filmmaker, and he did Crossroads, which was the, um, the, all the nuclear, the nuclear bomb tests that mm-hmm. happened. And um, I had seen excerpts of it on my laptop and probably my phone, but I walked into the Whitney a few years ago. It was the first time. It was not too long after the Whitney, the new Whitney opened in New York City. And I was just wandering around, not even knowing what I was going to see. I can't remember what I went there to see, but I walked into a room and Crossroads was on Mm -hmm. and uh, they had it uh, very large. And I was in there with about four or five or six other people. And I mean, to say that it both 
made my trip and wrecked my trip. I don't think <laughs> right. either one of those is hyperbolic. Sure. It's just true. Yeah. And I had already seen so much of this on a smaller screen, but the difference between how it was meant to be seen and, you know, yeah. and how I'd seen it before was there's just no argument about that. And the impact, of course, the, I mean, the footage is just so incredible. It's mm-hmm. And then the way he cut it is makes it so much more psychologically acute. But, um, yeah, I don't... I, I One of the things when I sat in the Rice uh, Cinema to watch Satantango, there was a kid... Most of the people who were probably more my age, you know, mm-hmm. kind of early middle age, middle age, but there was a kid sitting in front of me, and I can't imagine he was more than 23 years old. Mm-hmm. He was really into it. Mm-hmm. He was sitting forward in a seat. He was leaning on the seat in front of him. I don't think I could have peeled him away, you know, with a hook. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, he was just going to be there for the whole thing. And it made me feel better about the fact that these things can still be discovered even by the youngest generation. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, this is I'm going to say this and this will, you know, sound perhaps somewhat snobbish or whatever. But I do think it's true, which is that the best films and the best sort of you know, films of global cinema, so Santango or Tarkovsky or, you know, et cetera, are better than anything, any TV show that's ever been made. Like, that's just, I straight up believe that. And so that's a level that you are kind of experiencing that is better than, you know, even the best of television, you know, and that I think some people that are, you know, very into TV would kind of uh, recoil at that, but I just think it's true is that there is a level of, of profundity and that there is a level of visual ingenuity and the use of the language of the moving picture in a way that is, you know, more piercing and more profound and frankly transcendental than anything, any sort of TV show. And, and that really comes through when you see it in a movie theater is that when you watch it on your TV, of course, you can kind of, you know, get a, a sense of that, but that that really, that for me, that has really come through in, in cinema experiences and in theater experiences. And so, you know, seeing Sun Tango, seeing Tarkovsky's Andrei Rublev, the restoration that EFS played last January, seeing um, Kubrick's 2001 in 70mm, that's something that I would recommend everyone do if they haven't, which is go see. They screen that pretty often. I would say that that's this sort of great cinema experience that I've done the most. I think I've seen that six or seven times over the years. Mm-hmm. And usually anytime they play it in 70 millimeter, I go because mm-hmm. it's such a great experience and the sound is really cranked up. So it's really loud. You know, when the uh, Strauss's also Spock Zarathustra plays, mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning segment with the, the primates and, yeah, you know, it's just, it, it hits, you know, it really hits. It's like being in a, Pink Floyd concert or something well, like that. Well, how many young people do you tend to see in these screenings? You know, quite a few. Like, I mean, I think that there's a lot of uh, young people I see at AFS, and there's a lot of people I see over and over again when I go to screenings there. And, uh, you know, I think that there's definitely quite a youthful community, at least in Austin. And in terms of other places, I'm not sure. I mean, the thing is, is that a lot of quote-unquote art theaters are now sort of programming mainly for a kind of boomer retiree audience. And so that their programming is movies that younger people probably aren't as interested in seeing, which is like maybe things like period dramas, kind of like Merchant Ivory Fair, even though Mm -hmm. Merchant Ivory no longer exists. And so, you know, there's 
there's a whole world of global cinema that I think is quite vital right now. And a lot of those movies are, you know, very visually exciting, you know, and that's kind of truly like a global thing from the movies in South Korea, which there's, you know, these incredible directors working right now. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Bong Joon-hoon, you know, who directed *A Parasite* and many others. Um, Mexico's director. Mexico's. Yeah. Has a yep, great yep. scene. Colombia has a really uh, interesting scene right now. One of my favorite movies of last year, *Birds of Passage*, by the uh, director Ciro Guerra, who also did um, *Embrace of the Serpent*, which is another movie I really loved. Uh, I think both of those are streaming on Amazon Prime, so you can watch them on, <laughs> you know, TV now. But uh, you know, so I, and I think a lot of people really respond to a lot of these movies and a lot of this vision and, and sort of the same way that, you know, young people when American movies have become kind of stifling and boring kind of looked internationally for. So like a similar thing kind of throughout the 80s, a lot of those directors were looking at movies from Hong Kong or movies from France, et cetera, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, during a time which, you know, m uh, American movies were fairly dull. And I would say that that is really true now in terms of American Hollywood studio movies. It's just as it exists now, the the industry is mainly making movies for to go to maximum places in the world and be mm -hmm. able to play without right having to, you know shift the content or yeah censor exactly. Or so they wanted to play in China, they wanted to play in Russia, they wanted to play all these places, and uh, so you know you get basically comic book movies, Marvel movies, etc. Yeah, you get some broad comedies. And then you get, you know, some sort of kind of like dour prestige dramas that are looking to win Oscars. And that's <laughs> that's most of it. And so that's that's kind of a bummer. And I think that that's contributing to why people go to the theater less is that the offerings aren't that good. But, you know, 2019 was a really good year for film. I, and think, I think there have been some incredible movies yeah. this last year. Yeah. So it's encouraging in that regard. I mean, it was a really good, strong. I mean, you know, off the top of my head, you know, is Parasite. Pain and Glory, uh, Uncut Gems, The Lighthouse, High Life. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Once Upon was a awesome. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was great and a great theater experience. Yeah, that really good. Because, you know, that doesn't happen very much where, you know, a major studio gives a director like $100 million and then he spends it on building sets yeah. and not on CGI. And yeah. So it was like yeah, this yeah. holographic evocation of Hollywood in the 60s that didn't really use special effects. Yeah. Constructing these great sets, all that great neon, you know, and it was just everything was so precise. The music that was playing was the music that was actually playing that weekend in L.A. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that was. Plus, it's just incredibly entertaining. I mean, yeah. it's a really fun movie. Yeah, it's great. But uh, I mean, to, so and I saw that in a theater with a lot of people who I think were appreciating it, too. But there's the, this other argument for even if it's not such a communal experience, even if there aren't a lot of people in the theater, it's still worth going to see something on a big screen. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into a theater to watch a movie and I'm one of the only people there. And it's still worth it. Oh, yeah. I was, yeah. A, I was a film critic in the 90s. That's almost one of the ways I got started in journalism. And back then, there were film critics <laughs> full-time <laughs> okay. in Dallas-Fort Worth. And we would have to show up at the movie theater early in the morning before it opened to see a screening. Mm -hmm. So there were about, generally there were between... 
oh, I don't know, three and six of us who would show up from all over DFW who wrote for the various papers. And they'd have coffee and donuts. And you'd sit down at like 8 a.m. to watch Lost Highway. <laughs> right. And everyone would be sitting in very different seats. No one wanted to sit together. Half of the, you know, critics would have a notebook and a little flashlight. Half of us, including me, wouldn't. And, um... That was surreal and super memorable. And then there were times when I was just freelancing and wasn't going to an office every day. My friend who ended up is a costume designer for film and television and lives in New York. She and I would both go into a theater and sometimes we were the only people there. Mm -hmm. And it was still an amazing thing. I mean, it was still worth it. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, that's kind of a, a different. I would consider that sort of a different but, you know, equally cool and interesting experience to be in an almost empty theater by yourself because it feels very luxurious it's almost like you have your own private screening room and that happened to me I think twice this last year and it was great it was once for um the Christian uh I think his name is a Pinsnold movie Transit which is a very interesting film that takes a novel from the 40s about refugees from uh the Nazis trying to escape and they're in Marseille in this kind of limbo and it updates it to modern times but basically keeps the novel the way it is so there's still this kind of threat essentially of of Nazis but it takes place in modern times with you know phones and taxis and all this stuff the kind of gambit with that is pretty clear which is this you know back when there was sort of white people were refugees and they were in this experience of being in kind of a limbo Mm -hmm. holding space and you know purgatory so it's like basically like putting this experience that people have kind of racialized uh into a more flipping it or you know turning it around to essentially universalize it and i found it to be a very powerful and moving film Mm -hmm. and another one was the blackbird which is i was the only person in the theater for that which is uh excellent film that when I went in they were like uh so we've been told that this movie is um very graphic and disturbing and I was like yeah whatever oh the, and, the uh, is it Australian yeah 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 and it takes place in in uh, Tasmania when back then it's it was called brutal yeah it's insane it's it's extremely brutal and I thought it was really good I mean I think it's a great movie about colonialism and really Were you by yourself in the theater yeah i was the only one in the theater for okay, that so yeah. that creates a really interesting psychological space i yeah. saw inside lewin davis on a big screen in dallas and i think i might have been if i wasn't the only person in there i felt like i was the only mm-hmm. person in there and you're kind of starting to check your sanity at some point like am i having mm-hmm. the response to this movie that i'm even meant to be having sure. because i was i mean i was I was really, <laughs> I mean, I can't say I had an anxiety attack, but I almost had an anxiety sure. attack. It was, and I still love that movie. I absolutely love that movie. Mm-hmm. But it, to see it on my own in a big screen was, uh, it created its own very strange. If I couldn't check my response against anybody else. Right. And so, but it still wasn't like watching it at home where mm-hmm. I could have paused it, gotten up, called a friend and said hey have you seen this movie yet you know i had to really sit there with it and be in it and then leave and then assess it after i was gone Mm -hmm. and uh, i still think about that movie all the time oh yeah that's that's such a great movie i mean i've had so many you know I, i would say as a kid seeing fargo in the theater was a very seminal event for me um and i saw it five times in a row how old were you uh 14 so I would just ride my bike to the theater 
Uh, what a great age. After school, and they let me in for some reason. I was a big kid, and so I just did that for the week that it played. Oh, because of course it's rated R. Yeah, yeah. Of course, <laughs> so, of course. So uh, there was like a 5 o'clock show and a 7 o'clock show. So after school, I would just go see the 5 o'clock show and then ride my bike home. And uh, it, uh, yeah, so since then I've seen every Coen Brothers movie in the theater, I think. And uh, that's always really, you know, fun thing with a filmmaker you love, you know, to see. Do you think that kids under the age of 10 or kids pre-puberty or having the kind of, like, well, you know, I was six years old when Star Wars came out, mm-hmm. six or seven, and I had older brothers, and there was a little cinema in Irving Mall, God, I remember it so well, it was a GC, it was General Cinema, and um, I saw it, I mean, our parents would drop us off, because I had older brothers, they would let this happen, and I probably saw it nine or ten times mm-hmm. at age six, Yeah, Star Wars, the original Star Wars. Do you think kids are, I don't even know, are kids even, you you don't have kids, I don't have kids, are they having these experiences? I think so. For some movies, kids go see a lot, you know. I mean, I think that, uh, like, one of my friends who's younger than me by about eight years, you know, so when The Dark Knight came out, he was, like, 17, uh, and he saw that ten times in the theater. So I think that people still, kids still will respond to either well-made sort of blockbuster filmmaking or, you know, other things that just, you know, some movies just definitely lend themselves to repeat viewings and obsession and mm-hmm. stuff like that, you mm-hmm. know, so. Um, so let me think of what else I, I can say about in terms of like some crazy experiences I've had. The I got to say that the film criticism thing was interesting to be a film critic and to see, especially when I had to go see horror films for work. And you know me well enough to know that I just don't do yeah, horror very yeah. well. And I could get really resentful. Like mm-hmm. I'd be even Lost Highway really pissed me off. <laughs> well, that's a very scary movie it's too. It's so scary, and and it for the moment it made me very very angry with David Lynch. And I and he's a treasure, and I mean irreplaceable, and such an important part of our whole cinema landscape and history. Um, but I mean, I remember for the rest of the week I was just pissed off at David Lynch because I was forced to sit through this movie as a critic. And I think I even wrote about it. And I think it might. I mean, I was young. I was in my 20s. I imagine if I could find that review, it would be an angry review. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also my dad was, uh, my parents were divorced. And um, and dad, if you're listening to this, I'm not, I don't mean anything bad by this. This is an important part of my upbringing is you didn't really censor horror for us. <laughs> right. So he took us to Creep Show. Mm-hmm. He took us to some really, really scary movies. And he also had really scary books lying around. And I'm addicted to reading. And as a very young kid, I would just pick up anything he had. He liked to read horror and some really scary science fiction. Ray Bradbury is really important to me. But um, and I remember going, and I don't know what made me do this. One, My older brother and I, Brian, went to see Seven when it came mm-hmm. out. And I was a grown-up, but... I kind of, it took me a while to sort of uh, get through that. Uh, and and I don't know why he thought I could stomach that one. That's a very scary movie. That has one of the great scary sight gags or sight scares, not gags. Are you talking about the end of it? I'm talking about when that guy they think is dead, strapped to the bed. Absolutely. Wakes up. That's that was one the, of the thing great that got scary me. That got parts me. in the movie. Yeah, that is an insane part. <laughs> so. Yeah. Um, God. And then also, I wanted to ask you, I mean, in one of the great communal movie going experiences, um, um, you know, midnight movies and cult films are a thing, obviously. And I was about 13 or 14 
when in Dallas there was a really robust Rocky Horror Picture mm -hmm. Show scene, and it was a, I think it was a Highland Park theater, and my mom finally relented and she let my friend Mickey Bruner and I go see it, and it was just full on. Mm -hmm. I mean that was the whole production. Everyone was participating. They had the whole you know the Dallas version of the cast up on the stage, enacting the movie as it was playing. Yeah. Uh, people dancing in the audience, everyone singing, everyone knew every word, everyone was dressed up. There was the, you know, squirt guns, everything. Yeah. The whole thing that you read about. And um, that was incredibly fun. But then I'll say that in college, we all went to see it just on a regular the theater night. And it was a midnight screening. None of that stuff was happening. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, oh, I see the... Uh, the shortcomings in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not it's, quite that, as good a movie as I thought. That is a very interesting thing. The Rocky Horror Picture Show phenomenon is very unusual to me because, like, I personally think that a movie like Phantom of the Paradise is far better movie for what it's doing than Rocky Horror Picture Show. But Rocky Horror Picture Show just kind of lends itself to this participatory movie it's party the, thing. It's, it's the, the music original, is a huge part of it. Yeah, yeah. And it's the original movie party. And now that really kind of exists. And the, the Alamo theaters do that for all sorts of movies. So they'll do that for, you know, uh, Big Lebowski or The Room. You know, the the Tommy Wiseau kind of classic, camp, yeah. you know, campy, intentionally bad movie. And, yeah. and that's definitely become another kind of theater experience where it's a party and you quote along. Mm -hmm. You sing along, you have a blast, you know, so. And and as far as, like, repeat viewings go, and also the age that you are when something comes out, I mean, I remember telling my mom, she actually uh, reminded me of this story because we, we spent Christmas together, and she said that uh, when I was going through puberty, I told her that she could either take me to see Risky Business or I would sneak in. <laughs> yeah. And I had actually already done that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but that meant that I got to see it more than once. There you go. And then a couple of years later, Top Gun. My friends mm -hmm. and I went to see Top Gun over and over, not because we... Not because it's so great, but we were going through puberty. Sure. And it was yeah. the perfect movie for yeah. us, these pubescent girls, to go see Top Gun over and over and watch these guys play volleyball. Um, you know, whether I'm proud of that or not, I still just think it's funny. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know if kids are doing that kind of... They don't even have... You don't have to go to see a movie on a mm -hmm. big screen to have that experience. And years later, Velvet Goldmine did the same thing, but we were grown-ups by that time. We went to see it and sit on the front... My friends and I saw, sat on the front row in empty theaters watching Velvet Goldmine over and over because it was a really good horny movie, you know? Great horny movie. Love that movie. Uh... Great yeah, that's music. a that's a really uh, underrated movie, and it's a bit of a train wreck, frankly. Yeah. But it's a great train wreck. Yeah, it's a great train wreck. Well, it's also an example too of a movie where I believe of many movies uh, had this experience where the director had final cut, and then it was on Miramax, and the monster Harvey Weinstein would fight with the director and try to get them to change it to make it more sort of pedestrian and mainstream. And they would say, no, I have final cut. So we're not doing that. And so then in retribution, he would bury the movie or else basically kind of pay for it to get bad reviews, even though it was a movie his company was releasing, but he was so vindictive. He would just do that. So that happened to velvet goldmine. It happened to the Jim Jarmusch movie, dead man, which is a great movie that was buried. Yeah. Got bad reviews and now is kind of you know rightfully regarded as a classic and so that was something that happened over and over again you know what so about, uh, did that happen to idiocracy yeah 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 well i mean that just got heavily boulderized like 
it was you know one it of those was things. Bar- it was yeah, buried. It was buried. Yeah. So. And it was cut. The original cut of it was a lot darker, is my understanding. And was <laughs> darker sort of, than it already yeah, is? Yeah, even darker. God, that's a scary movie. Yeah. I know it's a comedy, and every time I'm like, no, I think it's a horror movie. Some people are like, how is that possible? It's like, oh, come on. Yeah. It's, it was just a prescient movie. <laughs> Very prescient movie, uh, yeah. And scary, scary, scary. The way Brazil, to me, is scary. The movie Brazil. Yeah, which is... Th- Great movie, um, one I've never seen in the theater and would very much like. Yeah, to. I haven't yeah. seen it on the theater either. When mm-hmm. we were so when we were little when we were kids, um, and uh, we how do I put this? Um, we were given a choice when I was about I was maybe thirteen or fourteen, and my mom had had gone back to school, gotten her PhD, started a private practice, finally started to make a little bit of money, and she asked us if we wanted what we wanted. The three kids, my older brothers and I. And we asked for a big screen. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways I did get to see stuff in my own living room was on a reasonably mm-hmm. big screen. I mean, this was the 80s, so it wasn't yeah. like a home theater. There was right. nothing like and We didn't have any. We didn't have that kind of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I will I will say that I saw movies like Brazil on a mm-hmm. reasonably big sure. screen at home. And I tend to sit very close to a screen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still Same. do that. Um, although in the theater, I like to sit kind of in the middle, but, um, yeah, I mean, Brazil, I can't watch again. I, I just remember it being very frightening. Yeah. It's a devastating movie. And it's also just sort of one of those movies where, you know, it it strikes a chord about, you know, things to come or whatever. For me, one of my great experiences and what I think is a movie that is so prescient that it's pretty hard to watch now, even though it's a very gripping, compelling movie, which is, uh, the Alfonso Cuaron movie, uh, Children of Men. Which, right. um, yeah, huh. which is pretty much just like now. And that movie came out in 2006. So I saw is Idiocracy. <laughs> yeah, I saw that uh, New Year's Day in 2007. And I was living in Seattle at the time. And just I just remember hmm. after the movie, you know, I'd stayed up late the night before. It was New Year's Eve and stuff. So I was hungover. And uh, after the words, I was just basically distraught because I just I felt so, you know, it was just like this horrible future of what was coming and it's pretty much all true down to in fact uh you know the the conceit of that movie that you know babies stop being born you know that's kind of like globally happening Mm. is that you know the birth rate is falling globally Mm. and uh you know but just all the the details of that movie you know of just like an incredible vitriol and and sort of oppression towards immigrants Mm. and this sort of, you know, fascistic government and, you know, the way that technology is used and everything. It's, People it's cite that movie a lot these days. Yeah, yeah. And they like, actually have over the last, well, really since it came out. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, that is a, a true classic, I think, you know, and it's it's a really powerful movie that, you know, kind of continues to be, uh, unfortunately, all too relevant. Yeah, that's true. But, I mean, I, I don't want to take away also just from the experience of not necessarily knowing what you're getting into. Oh yeah. That's and a going great mm-hmm. and seeing what happens. I was, um, I was, before I ever moved to London, I was on a trip there and, um, it was just a year or two earlier and train spotting had come out and I already knew about Danny Boyle stuff and had seen, uh, the one about the roommates. Um, and I was by myself. I'd left my friend back in Ireland and flown to London and I went to see Trainspotting on a big screen, I think also in Trafalgar Square. And I didn't know what I was getting yeah. into. That movie so blew my mind. And on a big screen, it was so amazing. Yeah. That's such an amazing movie. And, uh, 
you know, I've often thought of it would be, <laughs> be great to do kind of a bleak Glasgow trilogy of movies of train spotting, Lynn Ramsey's first movie, Ratcatcher, and then Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin, which yeah. all take place in Glasgow and really use the city as this kind of scary, desolate character. But yeah, I mean, seeing that's another great thing. And I think something we lost you don't stream that much of something that you don't know that anything you've never about. heard about or you, you haven't yeah. had all your friends tell you you should see yeah and i i don't have that experience very much anymore because i read about everything but i'm kind of trying to because you know recently and i would recommend everyone watch this movie without reading anything about it this movie border which i didn't know anything about and my friend and friend of glass tire artist Hill Snyder, who's a big movie fan, told me, just go see this movie. Don't read anything about it. Mm. And it was amazing. And I remember when I was first going to UT uh, for South by Southwest, I went and saw um, some of the films that were screening there. And this was in uh, March of 2001. And I saw Amoros Peros and mm. Donnie Darko, and I knew nothing about either of those. Ooh, Donnie Darko and, on a big screen. Yeah, wow. and not knowing anything about it was such a great experience. So that's a really fun thing is just, you know, the experience of like just going to a movie theater, picking a movie you don't know anything about, where you're like, well, that sounds good, and going to see it is really a rare thing, but is worthwhile, you know, just to kind of go into a theater experience and a cinema experience with no expectations. No expectations. Yeah. I did that a lot when I lived in London. I would just walk to whatever theater was nearby and see whatever was on the screen, whether it was full or empty or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, it's been so long since that kind of thing has happened. And the idea of going to see a movie twice on a big Mm -hmm. screen, I haven't done anything like that in years. Yeah. It sounds like you do that. I do. I do that quite a bit. So I've, this year I saw... Parasite three times in the theater. I saw mm. Uncut Gems three times. Wow. I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood three times. You did? I, saw, I didn't know this. Yeah, I saw Birds of Passage twice. I saw Midsummer three times. Oh, I saw no. <laughs> The Lighthouse twice. So that's definitely something that I do quite a bit. Because a lot of times it's like, I'll go see it by myself. And then I'll go see it with my dad or a friend or something like that. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I love to... Martin Scorsese says, you know, movies don't depict life, they are life. And I totally agree with that. And seeing movies in the theater is by far my favorite thing to do Mm -hmm. in the world. There's Mm -hmm. nothing I like more than going to see a movie in the theater. And seeing a great movie in the theater is, you know, basically pinnacle life experience for me, you know, which maybe some people find that somewhat sad, but whatever. That's just, oh, you know, I my, don't. I think it's my, really uh, inspiring. It makes me want to go back and see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on the big screen because I had such a good time the first time. And I did used to do that. I'm just, you know, I'm mm-hmm. compulsive enough myself to be like, you know, certainly as a teenager and in my early 20s, I remember seeing movies multiple times on big screens because it just seemed like, I don't know, I just had a, you know. You just, you get a bug and you just do it. Yeah. And you know, I don't have a partner and I don't have kids. So I have the luxury of being able to do that if I want to. Mm. I can kind of spend my free time how I want. Mm. And that's what I like to do. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so it's it's definitely something that I that I enjoy, you know. And I, I love to see a movie that I really like that I've never been able to see on the big screen before is a big thrill. So... You know, actually tonight I'm going to drive from here, Houston, to Austin to see The Master in 70 millimeter, which I, I only... know you love that movie. Yeah. It's on my short list. I don't know why I haven't seen it yet. Now that you're saying and I feel like a dummy, it's uh, I know I'm going to love it. Oh, yeah, it's great. You're going to love it. And 
And, uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is another director of who anytime uh, his movies come out, I get really excited to see them in the theater. I actually haven't seen The Master in the theater because when that movie came out, I was living in China at the time. It wasn't released in China. Mm. And so I had to watch it on DVD. But, you know, every one of his movies. So this will be your first time to see see it in the theater. Yeah. Every one of his movies from Boogie Nights onwards, I've seen in the theaters. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's always a big events so you know when phantom thread came out that was great you know inherent vice oh and so the opposite of seeing stuff on a really big screen is watching things in an airplane Mm -hmm. on the tiny screen screen. so i saw phantom thread yeah on a tiny screen of i was flying back from russia with my mom that's such a long flight i watched i think five movies yeah (laughs) in a row i just wanted to catch up and god we're talking about a degraded experience well that's the thing there's no better experience than to see a great movie in a theater and then to see a kind of shitty movie on an airplane is the best possible way. To see a, to see a movie so that's like... So the shitty movie that I watched on that leg was, um, what was it called? Red. It was a, uh, it was a Russian. She played a Russian... Red Sparrow or something. God, yeah, that Jennifer Lawrence movie. I, I was so not invested in anything that was happening that I kind of... Uh, She's like, you sent us to horror school or I something really like that. I really checked out at the end. I didn't care what happened yeah, to any of them. Not not great. So one of the movies also, though, was Sing Street, which was this kind of quiet uh, movie from 2016 about kids who start a band. Um, uh, it's the same I, director as Once, you know, which probably a lot of people yes, have seen. Yes, yeah. which, was, which was great. And it was so good. It was one of these unexpected things. I just pulled it up on the you know back of the airplane seat and watched it. And I actually, I, when I got home, I watched it again because mm-hmm. I wanted to give it some proper... It's a charming movie, yeah. Yeah, to yeah. give it some proper attention um, instead of just sitting in an airplane. Red Sparrow will never get another screen. <laughs> yeah, Red Sparrow is a great plane movie, you know. <laughs> just the best plane movies are these kind of like middling sort of action or thriller movies that aren't very good, but are a pretty good way to pass the time on an airplane, you yeah. know? So, uh, with that, um, we're going to send Neil off, uh, back to Austin to watch the master. Yes. And, uh, I'll just, you know, encourage everyone to where you are in Texas to, um, visit your local art theater, mm-hmm. your local museum that may do screenings. So here in Houston, there is Rice Cinema, which as we mentioned, seems like it's probably going to go away Mm -hmm. after this year so enjoy it while it lasts they do a lot of very cool experimental films Mm -hmm. uh art films you know video art etc just really special programming that will be sorely missed and then the museum of fine arts uh has a great theater and a film program yep run by marian uh lutz who -hmm. does a great job there and they often have international film festivals you know iranian film festivals turkish film festivals Etc. Where there's. I just went to see Roger Corman's uh, Mask of the Red Death there, and he was yeah, there, which is great. Yeah. And I had worked for him. I was a location scout, an uncredited location scout, on a movie that he made in Fort Worth. Of obviously, it was a straight to video thing, and I got to drive him around. He was a lovely human being. Wow, I didn't and know that. That's wa- awesome. And when he walked out on stage, I almost started crying because he's just the he's the same guy. He's so great. <laughs> he's and, so great. Yeah. He's such he's such an absolute mensch. Yeah. And he is responsible for. God, he was at career- film school. Yeah, he was the film school. So so many amazing directors: Jonathan Demme, Martin Scorsese. Many, many George others. Lucas, I believe yeah. Spielberg. All those guys. All worked for Roger Corman, and you know, God bless him. You know, he has a uh, small cameo in the underrated Jonathan Demme movie. Uh, ra- 
I think it's Rachel getting married. Yeah. Yeah. He's in that, and uh, which is quite a good movie. It and is. He is, has a charming little part in that. So, yeah, those are the places in Houston. MFAH Films does a great job. Yeah. In Austin, Austin Film Society is fantastic. The uh, uh, Alamo Ritz, uh, which is the downtown location, does quite a bit of repertory screenings. Mm -hmm. Um, In Dallas, the Texas Theater does a lot of cool stuff. Texas Theater's cool. Uh, The Inwood is still alive and well. We've got uh, Magnolia and Angelica up there. Some stuff, I mean, USNA went away. There were some really good art houses that are gone. Mm -hmm. And then uh, what about San Antonio? San Antonio, it's not great. Hopefully, someday it will be better. We've got the Bijou, which is uh, our lone art house film, and they do some cool stuff. There is a cool thing called uh, TPR Cinema Tuesdays that they run um, through the spring and summer where uh, Nathan Cohn, who's a TPR journalist and film buff, he, so he screens a lot of cool selections. So in the past, he's done things like... Uh, Ozu's Tokyo Story and, you know, mm-hmm. some really great films right. like that, Wings of Desire, um, yeah. and then crowd-pleasing stuff that's great, like Some Like It Hot, which was really fun to see in the theaters. Mm. And um, yeah, and then sometimes some of the other Santicos theaters will do repertory screenings. And then and then the Alamo uh, Park North, you know, does, that's where I saw Barry Lyndon, mm. and they, they do quite a bit of, the Alamo does a pretty good job of doing, you know, some specialty screenings. But hopefully someday San Antonio will have NAFS or something like that that right. you know right. does that it would be really great if they did but um, yeah you know so you make do with what you have that's but, right but uh, go out go to the movie theater you know go see a movie that's not a Hollywood movie that's not a blockbuster movie and uh, don't wait for it to stream go see it in the theater and yeah will, and take some risks take some yeah. chances and see something that you haven't heard much about and just uh, let it wash over you mm-hmm. yep and with that Go see some movies. Yep, we say go see some art, and movies are art too. So, absolutely right. Go see some art.